I'm Valerie Earnshaw. And I'm Carly Hill. And this is Sex, Drugs, and Science. Today's conversation is with Kimberly Nelson, who is an assistant professor in community health sciences at Boston University's School of Public Health. All right, Dr. Nelson, thank you so much for joining us on Sex, Drugs, and Science. We're super excited to talk with you. We um, want to pick your brain about lots of things, but probably first among them is all about pornography. So, Fair. yeah, <laughs> I study pornography. It's true. Yes. So we saw, okay, so one thing we were interested in, we saw this recent article that BU had covered on changes in or the introduction of resolutions in different states calling pornography a public health crisis. So apparently by 2016, there were 17 states, the article said that had done this. And A, I totally missed the boat. I didn't, wasn't aware that this would happening. So can you give us a little bit of context? Like, what are these resolutions about? What's the problem here? What's the perceived problem? Yeah, so the resolutions are very interesting and are not surprising. They're non-binding resolutions. So the first thing to know about them is they're basically just words without any, like, oomph other than words. They're like a declaration by the state that pornography is a public health crisis, but there's no then what. And the idea is that essentially when you make such a declaration, when we, you do these non-binding resolutions, is you're flagging this as an important issue that resources should be put towards, but it doesn't actually like allocate any resources. Um, so it's an interesting little like legislative yeah. process. So it's just like kind of like wagging my finger at you. Yeah, it's a little it's like, a little bit wagging the finger, like, but it also we all want to say pornography is bad. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as a state, we want to say <laughs> that pornography is bad. Um, okay. And the way that we're going to say that is that we're going to focus on it being a public health issue. Um, okay. Because as a moral issue, you can't really get into that as a state, but you can say, oh, this is bad for public health and get more buy-in uh, for the general populace. So that's, that's an interesting nuance of the framing. So what are they, how, is it fair to make an argument that pornography is bad for public health? Like what is their, what are they trying to say with that? In what ways are they saying that? pornography is bad for health there's a very long laundry list if you <laughs> if you ever get to okay. get to read one of these resolutions first off almost all of the resolutions are modeled off of the first one uh, which was idaho and uh the language that uh was used in that first resolution is basically mirrored in all of the subsequent resolutions and the language is actually written by a conservative uh christian group um, who Curious. started pushing this agenda uh, on multiple legislatures, but sort of like one first with Idaho. Um, and they claim pornography is bad in so, so many ways, uh, that it changes brain chemistry, that it changes the way it increases violence, uh, that it... Uh, makes men less likely to be faithful in their marriages or maybe even not want to be married. Um, it is uh, detrimental to our kids. It leads to sex trafficking. Um, makes you go blind. Just a lot of different things. And, and what's interesting about 
uh, that is that it's not all wrong. Um, there is some research to show that there are not the greatest effects of pornography on health, uh, but not the full laundry list that they're referring to, and that laundry list completely disregards any of the potential beneficial effects of pornography. Um, and so instead of giving sort of like a balanced view of how uh, pornography is being consumed and its effect on health, they're giving a very slanted one-sided view uh, that focuses on uh, a limited amount of studies. So the overall uh, literature on pornography as it stands currently is that it doesn't actually impact the health of most people who consume it. Um, there is some evidence to show that under certain circumstances for some individuals, it can be hard for them and harmful to their health, um, particularly around relationships, um, people who are already have sort of like the telltale markers of being prone to engaging in uh, violence. If they view more violent porn, they might be more likely to engage in violence with their partners. Um, but you have to meet all of those criteria to have that effect, right? Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the research on porn is very mixed. Um, and that really has to do with the fact that it really doesn't affect all people in the same way. Um, and for most people, and most people view porn, for most people, it's fine. Okay. You mentioned actually that there's some, I'm curious about what these benefits of porn watching might be. Yeah, so there's some evidence to suggest that uh, pornography watching is a really great way to explore your own uh, sexual preferences, what you're interested in, who you're attracted to, sexual behaviors you might be interested in engaging in. Um, for sexual and gender minority individuals, it can be very affirming um, to see representations mm -hmm. in media of people who are like you. Mm -hmm. um, because for those uh, individuals, they don't get to see that very often in sort of our mainstream media. So it can give them a sense of belonging and a place where they don't feel as othered, right? Um, and then the flip side of that, of course, because everything is, is the balance, is pornography is not the most accurate representation of sexual what? behaviors or sexual relationships or, let's say, communication with partners or... Uh, engaging in safer sex behaviors. So on the one hand, it can be really great and affirming and really um, helpful for people to explore their own sexuality. And on the other hand, not the most accurate. So is there like variation in porn? Like, is there like porn spectrum? Because I, I have some like vague awareness of, you know, there's like feminist porn and there, I mean, there seems to be like all of these different kind of niches. So so it seems like some of these things might also, I mean, they're dependent on the person watching the porn, but then they're also probably dependent on the porn that they're consuming or watching as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's the research um, generally suggests that it's not the amount of porn you watch. It's mm. what you're watching. Um, and so uh, it's really about like your exposure to certain behaviors or, um, you know, certain things that are being portrayed on the porn uh, that might not be the most healthy that's going to uh, potentially then be related to your actual behavior. Um, again, for most people, that's not the case. For some people, it is. Um, and so, yeah, there's porn has so many genres within it. Uh, it's a very, very 
uh, it's by some measure considered the largest media industry in the world and makes the most amount of money of any media industry in the world. Huh. Um, and so, although interestingly, there's no good way to measure that. So, like, okay. Well, I was uh, wondering with measurement when you were saying it depends on the type or, you know, there depends on what's in the porn that you're watching. So do you have, are there like validated porn measures where you're asking people like, what is it that you're watching or yeah. Yeah. I mean, validated per se. Is, okay. There are, <laughs> there, <laughs> there, there, there are measures. There are ways that we have measured this. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there are ways that this has been measured. I mean, okay. the other thing to keep in mind is that research in this area is incredibly poorly funded mm. um, because most funding, uh, at least in the U.S., around uh, sexual health is targeted towards disease uh, or pregnancy prevention. Um, and if you can't, like, directly tie pornography to a disease outcome or, a, like, a tangible health outcome, um, it's much harder to get money on it. Um, mm. So... A lot of the research in this area is really underfunded, which is why we don't have like a like gigantic breadth of uh, health-related porn research. Um, but back to the genre question. So there's a wide range of genre. Uh, it depends what you watch. There are there are porn studios in existence that are trying to portray healthier behaviors in porn. The problem is that those are the ones you have to pay for. Mm, okay. um, because for those studios to stay afloat, they need people to pay for their porn. Right. In a way that if you go on Pornhub, everything for the most part is free. And those are not, <laughs> like, that's not, not what you're going to be seeing. Porn. <laughs> right. And so like what people see is what they get for free because there's so much of it available. Um, unless they get have the finances to be able to afford to pay for specialty porn um, and are particularly interested in it. Okay. So it seems like a one part of your research is to teach, essentially teach people how to watch porn better. So, and this would fall under, is, do you call it pornography literacy? Yeah, porn so literacy. What's the, what, what's the idea behind porn, porn literacy? Yeah, so I think the idea behind porn literacy is really based in the concept of media literacy more generally. Um, so media literacy is a field that's been around for a really long time, um, and it is about helping uh, media consumers become more critical of the media they're uh, consuming. So I think a real classic example is when um, teachers uh, or parents talk to their kids about like advertising, right? So like advertisers are really good at making you think that the product that they have is you need it and it is the way that it should be and you know it's very powerful um and so media literacy says okay well let's think about this who's making that ad what do they have to gain from making that ad in the way that they've chosen to make it what are they trying to sell you and what's the reality like what it, what really is do you need that product? <laughs> Do you really need to believe that they're saying that it's the greatest product on the mm -hmm. face of the planet? What is the truth part of that? And what is the not truth part of that statement? Mm -hmm. um, and so media literacy is really about helping 
uh, individuals gain the skills to start thinking about those questions when they're consuming media. Who's okay. producing it? What do they have to gain? What, are the, what message are they trying to get you to buy? Um, and what part is real and what part is not real? Um, and so porn literacy is the same thing. It's helping people become more critical consumers of the porn that they're watching. Because the idea that, that I, I work a lot with youth now, the idea that youth are going to stop using porn, that like somehow we're going to ban porn and they're going to stop, like that's not a reality-based assumption. Pe people have been, porn has existed for as long as humans have existed and people have been consuming it for that long too. It's not going to go away. Um, and in fact, if it gets banned, that will probably just make people want it more because that's we're humans and that's what make we do. Make it more popular. <laughs> right. So, uh, so porn literacy is about helping people when they're consuming porn to really think about more critically who's producing this, why are they producing it, what does this actually look like behind the scenes? I think a lot about like sort of like helping people become uh, more understanding of what a porn studio looks like. Oh. Right? Like, where is that sex scene actually happening? How many people are in that room? Like, what does it look like? What does the contract look like? Who's being paid? What are they being paid to do? Um, and then reality testing. Like, is the behavior that's being portrayed representative of sex and reality mm -hmm. uh, between people? Like, like, did they put a towel down? Right? Like, think about what sex actually looks like yep. mm -hmm. versus what sex looks like in porn. Is there a towel on the bed? Probably right. not. Did their pet interrupt them? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> right? Like, did their, yeah. for teens, did their parents walk in or was there a mm -hmm. chance that their parents would walk in? Most porn not, although some porn might fetishize that, so <laughs> you never know. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's the, like, racial and gender stereotypes that get played out in porn. Um, and so helping people really think about power dynamics mm. and how that's being portrayed and to start thinking a little bit more critically about um, how that might, how viewing that repeatedly might be impacting their own beliefs. Um, what are some of those racial and gender stereotypes that play out in oof. porn? It's oh. just it's <laughs> Pandora's box. Rough. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's like, I think the classic version is there is like black slave fetish porn. Oh. Um, okay. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it go like the whole I mean, porn takes it all. So like, porn, porn is like a okay. free reign. Um, but any stereotypes that you you can think of in your life related to, you know, women being submissive or like, mm. or really enjoying um, being controlled or, you know, all of those things are, there's some truth in that for some people. And there's some, it's not so helpful if that's all you think a sexual relationship looks like. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like some people like to be dominated. There's nothing wrong with that inherently. But just because that's all that you're seeing doesn't mean that you have to like to be dominated. Right. Yeah. I have a question though. So what is that? So you said, you know, like you, you encourage people to think about things like, you know, who's funding this? What's the contract look like? Who's, who's getting paid? Like, where is these, how do you find that out? Like how, what are, what are the steps that you would encourage people to take to like, you know, because I, I don't think like Pornhub's like, oh, and this was produced in you know, this <laughs> studio. If you guys wanted to check out what we're paying people, you know, like, so, oh, so you're not going to be able to. The porn industry is so secretive mm, about right. their financials. 
what are some tips that you have for for people to um, make sure that they're viewing porn responsibly? Yeah, I think it's not necessarily that you need to like track it all the way back to one specific studio. I think it's a lot about sort of generally just keeping that question in mind and knowing that that's a question that you should be asking, right? Just having the knowledge that like somebody produced this, somebody made this so that they could make money, right? right. They didn't make it so that you sitting at home viewing it are going to get something specific out of it other than they want you to be attracted enough to it that you clicked on it, which made all of the ads show up, which made the money go into their pocket, right? It's an industry. And I think that gets lost um, when people are not fully thinking about the fact that like, really, this is not about your pleasure. It is about making money in the same way that advertising is about making money. Right. Um, and so it isn't like we need to figure out that this movie was made by Treasure Island. Like, although Treasure Island will gladly claim all of their movies because they're like a brand. Um, but it is about getting people to be like, okay, so somebody is making money with this. Um, and even uh, porn that is quote unquote amateur is oftentimes produced. Hmm. So even just having the knowledge that like what you're viewing is quote unquote amateur porn, um, it might not be the case that it is. Uh, and so it's sort of like, it's like lifting the veil. It's like, what, yeah. <laughs> what does Oz actually look like? Um, and so getting people to really recognize that like, it is totally fine to look at porn and to get off looking at it and to like, enjoy it and to enjoy your body while you're doing it like that you're doing that and as long as you're not hurting anybody else in that process um although some people might claim that you might be hurting the actors uh who might be coerced into that process um most people are going to look at porn and and for the most part it's going to be fine but helping them really think about the fact that it is an industry it is there to make money uh it does not treat its workers particularly well and um really just recognizing that like it's there for a purpose and the purpose is not you so, <laughs> other so than to get you to click. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens when you increase people's porn literacy, when you get them to think about these things and kind of when you, yeah, when you kind of raise the veil and have them take a look at Oz? Yeah. Well, so I'm currently conducting a study uh, that's a porn literacy intervention. So I don't know the results of my study yet. Um, but the two studies that we do have that are porn literacy based, one is actually one of my colleagues at Boston University, Emily Rothman. Um, and then there's another one out of Ireland. There's only and two both... studies on porn literacy. Correct. Porn. Wait, so porn is the biggest media industry that we have. And there's only two studies on what happens when you teach people how to watch porn. Correct. As, as far as I know. Wow. Those are okay, the two sorry, that I continue. know of. That's, that's really impressive. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it makes I sense mean, it goes, the funding streams. I understand mm -hmm. it, but that's just that. Yeah. Okay. And, and both of them were pilot studies and mine is a pilot study, right? So there's okay. not been like a full big rollout porn literacy study. Yeah. Okay. So what do they show? Uh, so both of them showed that porn literacy was incredibly good at helping, uh, they were both with youth and they, it was very good at helping youth become critical consumers and to, to be able to identify and think about 
how porn was not necessarily reflective of real life. And um, I can't remember for the Ireland study, I know for Emily Rothman's study, she didn't actually do sexual behavior outcomes. She did attitudes. Um, but those generally shifted in a way that was more um, healthy. I would say. Mm, mm -hmm. um, and the Ireland study, similarly. It was really, both of them showed sort of preliminary evidence that porn literacy can help youth become not just better porn consumers, but start thinking about sexual behaviors with their partners in a more uh, holistic and healthy way. Okay, so if we're not going to change what's in porn, because that's a huge industry making lots of money, and we're not going to stop people from watching porn in part because porn can be good, then it seems like we've got some preliminary evidence that teaching people how to watch and engage with it can lead to good outcomes or can help to reduce the negative effects, at least, of porn. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, okay. I would say that's where, I mean, it's a very, as I just said, it's a very young research area. Yeah. Um, and so I think the preliminary evidence shows that this has the, it has potential. Mm -hmm. I've been dying to know what is it like, you know, you're saying you, you work a lot with, uh, you know, adolescents, youth and running these focus groups, you know, asking these 14, 15 year old kids to, you know, open up and talk to you about their porn use. Like, what is that like? What is the behind the scenes? Like, what do we not, you know, see about doing research like this? Uh, one is I don't do focus groups because okay. um, that I think would not actually, you wouldn't get the, you would get a very peer influenced mm. version. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, teenagers in general are very susceptible to what they perceive their peer, their peer norms to be. And if you put a bunch of teenagers in a room to have a focus group, it could have a lot of potential to get them to like build off of each other. And that could be very interesting. And I know that Emily Rothman's porn literacy interventions actually like taught in a classroom. Hmm. Um, and so that's a really interesting uh, approach. When I talk to and gather data about teen porn use, I almost always, and this is um, for a couple of different reasons, I usually do online surveys. Um, one is because I focus specifically on sexual minority male adolescents. Um, and so asking them to do a online survey opens up uh, their ability to engage in the research without potentially inadvertently outing themselves to anyone. Um, they can do it in the privacy of their own home. They can uh, feel possibly more open to being able to uh, honestly answer questions about porn. And I ask them a lot of very detailed <laughs> questions about their porn use. Mm -hmm. um, Which, and what are you seeing? How long are you seeing it? Yeah. Right, exactly. Okay. Like, when did you start? How young were you uh, when you, like, the first time you ever looked at porn, how old were you? Tell me all about it. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I have open-ended questions. I have closed-ended mm -hmm. <laughs> I, mm -hmm. I ask a lot of questions. Um, and, and I ask them about that, that those perceived peer norms. So I ask mm. them about their own porn use. And then I ask them to sort of think about how they think porn is affecting other adolescent sexual minority male youth. Um, they have opinions. I mean, the wonderful yeah. thing about working with teens is they, nobody talks to them about this stuff. And it's, it's hyper present for them, right? They are, they are at sort of their uh, sexual awakening and... They want to be able to understand what's happening 
They want to be able to talk about it and nobody talks to them about it. So as soon as you start talking to them about it, even if they get a little giggly and embarrassed, uh, they are mostly very happy to talk about it. Um, does that actually answer your question? I don't know. Yeah, like, no, it did. That was a fascinating answer. Yeah. Yeah. We were actually talking a little bit about our own sex ed before we got on. And I was, I was really surprised to hear that Carly, what would this have been like the 2000? Uh, so f yeah, family life would have been, it was like a, the program was from like fifth grade to eighth grade. I went to a small Catholic school and uh, family life. Family life, right? Yeah, that's what I was I was telling Valerie that uh, I took a human sexuality course in undergrad and this Dr. Foley was going around, you know, he, he gives this whole speech on like, can you believe that there used to be this thing called family life where like, you know, the girls would have to sign virginity packs and like do all these things. And then he asked us to go around and like share, you know, what sex I was like for us. And I was like, yeah, I had family life like we had the whole you know signing of of the packs and, and everything carly like signed a virginity pact yeah. in the 2000s yeah they, like, they have blue. been shown to be 100 percent not effective no so congratulations sure on yeah. that 100 percent not effective yeah. intervention no mm -hmm. no not once ever after signing it except for today did i ever think about it again if that's <laughs> any <laughs> well it's interesting because like we don't do well overall with sex ed in schools and then to think about sex ed for folks who might be sexual minorities or and then to think about porn in the mix i mean this definitely seems like it'd be an area that school's not addressing i mean are parents addressing this like are so nobody addresses this people just mm -hmm. sign on and start watching porn yeah Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a very rare parent who talks to their mm. youth about porn early enough. Mm. So on average, you start looking at porn between the ages of 11 and 12. So wow. even even if let's say family life <laughs> decided <laughs> to touch porn? this, yeah. given the age, like the ages of the grades that you just gave, that's like a lot of those youth will have already started looking at porn. Um, and so, you know, I think there's some benefits to think about not just getting youth this information, but when, right? When should we start talking to youth about this? Does it need to be before they start consuming? And what does that look like? We saw um, from one of your studies that youth were having, I mean, the average age of, you called it sexual debut. So for having sex for the first time was 14 and that your the participants of the study said that they wished that they had information about um sex before 14 which is i was you know i was like doing the math on this so targeting so when when do you think is the ideal time to intervene or to try to work on porn literacy i think that if i had like a magic wand and yes. could make the us not a puritanical society <laughs> We'll I would say that we should that. do so. We should do something similar to the Netherlands, where mm -hmm. their sex ed starts in kindergarten, and they do it, and it's age appropriate, and it, it normalizes the fact that sex is a normal behavior that most individuals are going to engage in at some point in their life. Okay. Um, and I would actually start not necessarily talking about porn that young in kindergarten, but I would start talking about media. Mm, okay. Uh, 
because kids engage with media and they engage with media a fair amount. I think about my own uh, quarantine child who is uh, watching a lot of media right now. And I look at that media, I watch it with him, and I think about the um, subtle ways that it is likely shaping his understanding of relationships, right? Um, think about how sort of heterosexist <laughs> our media is generally, right? Even kids' shows talk about kids like, like boy-girl pairs having crushes on each other or like teasing each other about liking a girl or liking a boy or, you know, just very subtle. So like that's all there already. So like it's all, in my opinion, should be talked about right from the get-go. If kids are consuming media, we should be talking to them about what that media is saying and how it is and is not necessarily accurate. And it um, seems gender like norms too. Woof. Yeah. Rough. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Woof. And it seems like if we sort of primed them early that like, think about the gender norms in Paw Patrol or, or just think about, you know, think about Paw Patrol more deeply <laughs> or what are they trying to sell you, you know, at these commercial breaks and things like that or within the shows that by the time that they are watching porn, that they may already be thinking about this or, or primed to be on the lookout if they're just consuming this as like another form of media in their life. Agreed. So it could generalize that, out. I think it could generalize that way. Because once you really start thinking about media in this way, it you don't exactly shut it off. Like it's not, mm. it doesn't like suddenly go away. Um, and so I think having those critical thinking skills starting at a young age would not be harmful in any way. It would potentially be quite beneficial. I love that you are pulling in these public health interventions. You said this one was from the Netherlands because <laughs> this just reminds me of your own public health application to your own life when you had Jules that you brought in this, what was it? Where did this baby box come oh, from? Oh, the baby box. Sweden, I think. Or was it Swedish? Norway? It was oh, one forget. of the Scandinavian countries. Yeah, and I loved it. So um, I was at Kim's baby shower and one of the things on the baby shower list was this like baby box, which was like a box um, that came with like lots of like gender neutral clothes. Like I think you got the Fox one, right? I mean, the box wasn't at the shower, but that was like, you were basically like, all I need is this baby box. Correct. And then, and then the baby can sleep in the box, right? And then it has like some other things for the baby, right? It has everything that you need to have a newborn. Yeah, okay. it has clothes, diapers, ointments, yeah, bottles, and a place for it to sleep. Like you literally could have a baby, and you could just have a baby box, and you would be okay for yeah. at least a couple months. So Kim, so and there's been research on this baby box that it leads to better infant outcomes, right? Yeah, and and so they are like everybody gets them in some places of the world. And I think that they were like rolling them out in different places in the U S but yeah, New I Jersey, really I think has a, okay. a baby box thing now. Um, I feel like there's another state as well. Yeah. But I just loved this like application of like, here's this like public health practice and I'm going to do it to my life, <laughs> to it in my life. <laughs> and it does seem that like all of these like public health applications come out of places like the Netherlands and, you know, other kind of Scandinavian places mm -hmm. where they really got public health on lockdown. Yeah. 
Well, or at least are thinking about very creative ways of being yeah. open to options that might mm-hmm. be useful. Mm-hmm. So why is it important? I mean, it sounds like it's important to focus on young people watching pornography because you want to get them before they start, or you want to try to try to curb this off early in life so that they're thinking about it as they go on. Is that the basic idea behind studying adolescents specifically or working with adolescents? Yeah. Um, I think what, what is very interesting for me about working with teens, and I particularly uh, am interested in working with teens who haven't necessarily had their sexual debut yet, mm-hmm. is exactly what you're talking about. It's really about helping to reach youth before or right around the time where they're starting to have sex. Um, And there's a lot of uh, research to suggest that health behaviors that are engaged in during adolescence actually carries through adulthood. Hmm. Um, And this is across all sorts of health behaviors, um, exercise, eating, you know, cardiovascular health, it like really crosses over. Uh, And so if we can help youth have their first behaviors be healthy, they are more likely to keep doing those behaviors across their teenage years and into adulthood. Okay. Um, So for me, it really is important because not only do we have the opportunity to intervene at a potentially... um, high risk time period because teens are the perfect combination of like starting to have really good executive functioning skills and are very prone to peer influence and mm-hmm. are not so great at emotion regulation. So it's the perfect storm. And so if we can even in that time period help to decrease their risk, that's going to have like immediate benefits, but it also is going to have long-term benefits for them. So it seems that, and I know that you've done a lot of thinking about this, though, that asking teenagers about the porn that they're watching and their perceptions of porn, and then also, you know, doing porn literacy interventions with them where you're teaching them how to watch porn could raise some interesting ethical issues for you. You know, I mean, typically when we do a research study, we have to go essentially get parental permission for... um, for people who are under, yeah, for people who are under 18 to involve, be involved in a research study. So I have to like tell the parent all about it and then they have to sign off saying that their child is allowed to participate in that research. So how do you think about some of the, but you know, I can imagine that this would be complicated for your public population. So how do you think about some of these sort of like ethical issues with the research that you do? Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. So I get waivers of guardian permission for all of the research that I do, and I do that for a variety of different reasons. Um, One is uh, it is not actually um, necessarily beneficial in this particular case. There's a lot of research to show that uh, youth 14 and up have the same ability to understand consent materials as adults. So having a guardian involved isn't necessarily going to make it so that they better understand what they're agreeing to participate in, which is one of the, uh, one of the reasons that guardians are typically involved in Mm. the research process is that they're supposed to be helping their uh, youth make a informed choice. 
Um, so if you take away the idea that youth are unable to make an informed choice on their own, um, then possibly guardian permission is not, not so helpful. Uh, the other thing, and the other reason particularly for the youth that I work with, that I get a waiver of guardian permission is because it actually has the potential to be harmful for some of the youth for their guardians to be involved, um, particularly for youth who are not out to their guardians about their uh, sexual orientation or attraction to other male youth. Um, if they're not out to their guardian and the study requires them to be out to their guardian, that's going to have two different effects. One, it's going to bias my sample um, to only include youth who are out, um, which is not necessarily the most vulnerable youth uh, or the youth who mm -hmm. will need this type of intervention the right, most. Right. Um, and then for youth who are not out, it could potentially out them. And that process could be very harmful for some of them. Not all of them necessarily, but for some of them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, including being kicked out of the house or like financially cut off or cause, you know, intense family discord, um, none of which are beneficial to that youth. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really those factors that I think about balancing. Um, what is a parent or guardian really going to bring to the consent process that is going to be protective of this youth? And if I don't think that they're going to be able to help them necessarily, um, that's a factor, and then also the like potential for harm. I will say, and this oftentimes gets um, a little bit muddied when people hear that I get a waiver of guardian permission, they say, well, you can't just block out the parents. And I'm not asking them to. Youth mm -hmm. have every right to involve their parents in this process. I'm not telling them not to. Mm -hmm. They can absolutely tell their parents that they might be interested in taking part in a study and ask their parents for help as a part of the process of consenting and all of that. I'm not saying they don't, they shouldn't do that. I'm saying they don't have to. Mm -hmm. And I yeah, think that's, that that's really difference. a key distinction. Yeah. Um, the other thing I do is I do a uh, capacity to consent assessment where I make sure I ask the youth questions about the consent materials that they've just read through to make sure they really understand what they're getting into what the risks and benefits are, what the procedures are, and what they should do if they feel uncomfortable or if they want to stop. Um, so youth are not able to participate in my studies if they can't accurately answer those questions. That's fantastic. I mean, we should do that with all of our studies. Yeah. <laughs> um, Whenever you have to, I mean, whenever we want to propose a new study, we have to take it to this ethics board. So a group of people um, who review our protocol and ask us questions and essentially decide, you know, if it's a safe study to do or not. So I imagine that you have really fun conversations with your ethics boards. Do you have like a, are you at the point where you've got like a little packet for them with like <laughs> research and like, here's, here's the reasons why I do what I do. Like, are you a frequent flyer there? Like, do you go to every monthly full board meeting? And <laughs> I I wish I, I actually love IRB reviews, so I wish I wish they would invite me. Yeah, um, they don't invite you. You would be. I would invite. Yeah, you would be invited at ours. Um, <laughs> it it depends on the IRB. This is the really hard okay. thing about doing research across different institutions is that mm -hmm. uh, institutional review boards or IRBs are different. Mm -hmm. um, and their norms within their IRB communities are different, and their beliefs about this type of work or guardian permission, there's no 
um, universal standard. Okay. Um, and so that makes it tricky. So it depends. Um, I always provide empirical evidence to support the claims that I'm making mm. around um, guardian permission. Um, and there thankfully is quite a bit, including some research that I've done about uh, waivers of guardian permission, particularly for sexual health research with sexual and gender minority youth. Um, there's a wonderful group out of Northwestern and another group that collaborates with them out of Fordham um, that have just done really very clever, smart work around this to collect the empirical data that we need to show, to support the points that this would bias samples, it would potentially be harmful for some youth, um, and that uh, involving the guardian doesn't necessarily mean that the youth would have more or better understanding of mm. the studies. Mm -hmm. That um, seems like a really key point that like, you know, if this isn't necessarily helping, then, and it's harmful, then why do it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole point of IRB re reviews is to make sure that what's happening isn't, that the risks and benefits weigh out, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So as we're talking about this, one thing I realized that, you know, we've known each other for years now. One thing I've never asked you is how did you, A, how did you get interested in this like topic of research? It's so, you know, it's not often that you hear someone say like, so this is a topic of study that is really underfunded <laughs> and hard, to, you know, because that means it's actually like a really challenging career path for you, we could argue. I mean, to say that like, I'm going to develop expertise in a program of research in this thing that's going to be hard for me to get research grants for, but I need these research grants to like progress in my career. So how did you, how did you get involved in like, pornography and pornography literacy overall and then also you know as someone who doesn't identify as an adolescent sexual minority man why this like why this population like how did these how did this interest kind of come together for you yeah so um it all started back in san francisco mm, of course it did in, yeah in the early 2000s okay um so i graduated from undergrad and i went to undergrad at wesleyan university and wesleyan graduates go to two places primarily when you graduate you either <laughs> go to new york city or you go to san francisco okay did you flip um, a so, coin to decide were you like heads new york tails san francisco you know i don't really understand the decision making process i decided i wanted to live in yeah. san francisco i don't understand 22 year olds anymore either so okay so you landed in san francisco you're eating your sourdough bread you're thinking about pornography i don't know what were you doing? <laughs> So I ended up getting a uh, internship at um, what was then called the UCSF AIDS Health Project. Mm. It's now called the UCSF Alliance Health Project. Okay. Um, and I was uh, a intern on. I was their research intern, um, and they were conducting a study that was a behavioral intervention for HIV prevention with. Um, men who have sex with men, so gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. Mm -hmm. And the intervention was actually a counseling intervention that was integrated into the HIV test counseling um, that was being done. And so as a part of that, I got to uh, not only become an HIV test counselor certified in California, but I also became one of the interventionists. And um, when my internship ended, I actually became their research coordinator. Um, 
And what was very interesting about that time in San Francisco is uh, some of the last really large gay porn studios that had been in LA moved to San Francisco. Hmm. And so there started being these like large uh, gay porn release parties and like it became like a whole scene. And I, um, in addition to being invited to some of those parties, which was totally amazing, um, <laughs> as an HIV test counselor, more and more of uh, the people that I was counseling were framing their behaviors in terms of the porn they were seeing. Mm, so they would say, I had a total porn star moment. I did X, Y, Z in the back of this bar. Oh, okay. You know, or like yeah. a porn star, I did blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of got me like thinking about how porn consumption was impacting the behaviors and the way that people were thinking about sex. Mm-hmm. I then uh, went to go get an MPH in epidemiology um, from uh, the University of Washington in Seattle. So I moved to Seattle. Highly recommend. Seattle's amazing. Um, and you know, as with so much in research, it really is about like random happenstance things that sort of like get you on a path. Um, and so I was like in the middle of my epi program and I was taking this course. I, I don't even remember what the course was. It was like community something. I don't remember. It was a required <laughs> course. The All course right. itself was not particularly great. Oh, okay. But we had an assignment, and the assignment was, if you could develop any public health intervention that you wanted to, what would you do? Okay. And I was so sort of fed up with how I felt the course was. Like, but I, I decided that I would do a porn intervention. Okay. And so I decided that porn stars were like peer opinion leaders. Mm. And so I created a peer opinion leader intervention that was using porn stars to promote HIV prevention. So what types of interventions have opinion leaders been used in within the field of HIV? I think mostly uh, it has been really about um, condom use because it was yeah. pre-prep when peer opinion leaders started really coming out. And they were particularly used among tight-knit African-American and Black communities. And basically, they're people who are going around in their communities saying, like, hey, aren't condoms great, right? Like, basically. That's, their, that's the gig. Okay. That's their job. They're people who are, like, well-respected already in their communities and are well-known. Mm, okay. um, and so it's people who are already, like, leaders in the opinion and have good mm-hmm. sort of, like, clout, I think. Um, Got it. So I, <laughs> I wrote this paper about how porn stars should be peer opinion leaders and um i the paper was fine i don't even know how i did on the paper but you interested in the time i mean it it got me sort of like thinking a little bit more about how i could think about the intersections between pornography and health and so at that same time i was applying to uh, phd programs in psychology um and uh because i am a bizarre human being. I only applied to two. No, <laughs> and one was baller. You're like, I'm gonna get into this. That's one was in social or... psych. Yeah. Oh, okay. and one and one was in clinical psych. Uh-huh. Um, and I was interviewing at the clinical psychology PhD program at the University of Washington. And my 
who would become my mentor asks everybody when she interviews them what they want to do their dissertation on. Oh, wow. Okay. It's a brutal I question. Failed. I would have failed that question. Um, okay, so continue. And I came up with an answer that was related to her work. She does work, uh, this is Jane Simone. She does amazing work on like adherence and um, HIV medication adherence. Uh, she does some work around peer stuff. Um, she now has moved into global health. Um, but at the time, she was really known for her work in, in medication adherence. And I, became, I like came up with some answer around medication adherence, even though that had never been sort of like my main jam. And then sort of like offhandedly at the end of that, I was just like, or I've been really thinking a lot about how porn intersects with sexual behaviors. And I think it could be really interesting to think about how uh, gay, bisexual and other sexual minority men are, you know, engaging with pornography and how that's, you know, interacting with their HIV risk. And she's like, interesting and she <laughs> left it at that and I was like well but I could never do that study because like no IRB would ever agree to that uh, um and then I talked to who would become my secondary advisor also on my interview loop and I just was like well I'm just going to tell him that idea because he's a sex researcher um and I was like but the IRB would never let me do that and he's like why not of course they would let you do that you should definitely do that um and so I came into my PhD program with my dissertation idea in hand. That's amazing. Um, and I wrote a uh, F31, which is an NIH uh, pre-doctoral um, award grant to support educational your yeah, planning thing mm -hmm. uh, that pays for your classes, but it also gives you like a small pot of money to do research. Um, and I applied for it in my first year and I got it the first go um, and it was about uh, doing a large mixed methods study about pornography use in adult uh, sexual minority men um, and uh, so that was interesting. Um, <laughs> what did you find? Uh, that not surprisingly almost all sexual minority male uh, adults use porn. They Similar to porn. most adults, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some evidence to show that actually sexual minority men view it the most out of all adults. Mm, okay. So there's like, everyone hangs out at sort of like 85% and above, but like okay. gay, bisexual, and other sexual minority men are like between the like 98 and 99%. Got it. Um, and, uh, and what that research showed was that... Uh, their sexual risk behaviors were actually associated with viewing sexual risk behaviors, specifically condomless anal sex. So those who reported mm. more condomless anal sex in the porn they were viewing were more likely to report having uh, engaged in condomless anal sex themselves. Okay. Cross-sectional. So could go either way. It could be that people like who engage in condomless anal sex like viewing it more, or it could be that viewing it more is associated with engaging in it more. Got it. Okay. Could go either way. Um, but that research was uh, happening at the same time as two other researchers were doing almost the same study. So Simon Rosser in Minnesota, Eric Scrimshaw at Columbia um, were also doing basically the same study, and we so, all got the same results. Hold on, though. So basically what's happening is you're a PhD student with this F grant, with this F award, which is a pretty small study, and you're doing this work that has not yet been done. And then we've got these two big deal, more senior researchers in the field who are doing the studies as well. So that's pretty impressive. I mean, the fact that you're engaging in that level of science as a PhD student is like really pretty incredible. I mean, that's amazing. It was also very intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
(laughs) They also had like, at the time, Eric, I don't think had his art yet, but like Mm -hmm. Simon's study was a full R01. I mean, it was like, huge. it was a great, I mean, that's a million dollar grant. Yeah, you have like, yeah, you have a couple thousand dollars like maybe to do it. Fifty thousand dollars, I think. Okay. Um yeah. but the more that I was thinking about how this media interacts with sexual behavior, the more I got interested in what was going on with youth. Mm. Um, and particularly around uh how do we reach youth and help them? Okay. Like do we see that association with youth? And if we do, how can we help youth? Um and so I did my uh I moved from Seattle to Boston, but did my postdoc at Brown uh, and uh, decided to pitch a career development award that was specifically about um, understanding porn use and sexual minority male youth and uh, developing a porn literacy intervention for them, uh, which I'm, I'm literally right in the middle of doing my online RCT right now. Oh, I'm that's it. Halfway okay. through recruitment. No, we're more than halfway through recruitment. Hey, I'm 65% through recruitment. Nice. That's awesome. That's a good milestone to hit. Yeah. So it's can you tell a, us a little bit more a, about what it looks like? Yeah, it's a bizarre time Yeah, mm-hmm. to be running an RCT. And I had a decision point because um, mm-hmm. I was supposed to start it on April 1st. And I was like, well, I could postpone the study until uh, people are able to actually see sexual partners again. Um, because oh, it's a pilot study. Right. Okay. So the, your dependent variable, the thing that you're looking to see how it impacts is sexual behavior and people are alone in their houses maybe, or at least if you're a young person, you know, you're probably not in a house with your partner. You're in a house with people you're not having sex with. Okay. Oh, correct. Okay. Caught up. Continue. Thank yeah. <laughs> um, so I could postpone the whole thing or mm-hmm. I could capitalize on this a very unique moment where youth are stuck at home and uh, and help get some, what I'm hoping is good sex ed to them. And mm-hmm. so I decided to move forward and I was also, my current IRB is wonderful. And so I was able to add uh, COVID specific questions to the study. And so in addition to asking them about their sexual behaviors, um, I'm also asking them about uh, like their in-person sexual behaviors. I also added some questions specific to uh, additional online sexual behaviors that I thought they might be engaging more in um, now that they're stuck at home, like more sexting, um, more chatting with uh, men on men seeking men uh, apps, um, mm-hmm. possibly more masturbation, uh, mm-hmm. more porn watching, um, I also put in a question about uh, trading pictures and videos for money mm. um, to see if that is going to go up as youth are most likely to lose their jobs in this process. Okay. Um, and then I asked some questions about how worried they are about COVID, um, how if they are or are not social distancing at this moment. Um, and then I asked some open-ended questions about how it's impacting their sex life and then also how it's impacting their life in general. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I basically just, like, kissed my can. sexual behavior <laughs> outcome goodbye in that process. But um, what a smart way to pivot by especially including all of these sort of, like, online behaviors that people might be engaging in and seeing what that looks like at this moment is super smart because there is a lot of things that people are doing online. And I've got to imagine that if we're not particularly, you know, 
if that's not going to, as you said, be related to a disease outcome necessarily or a pregnancy outcome, then it's going to be underfunded. So we probably don't know a ton about all of these online sort of sexual behaviors, especially that adolescent sexual minority men are engaging in would be my guess. Yeah. Well, and then there's the, you know, it might not impact their in-person disease acquisition Mm -hmm. now, but it might later. Oh, for sure. Right. Because it might be that they're uh, doing a lot of chatting with a lot of different guys online and Mm -hmm. they might meet up with them later. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, and there, then there's like the legal implications of sexting when you're underage and um, any sort of trading of pictures and videos for money. Um, so even though, you know, their chance of getting an, you know, getting HIV or an STD at this point is pretty low because they're not seeing their partners, that doesn't mean that the behaviors they're engaging in now won't necessarily translate to higher risk behaviors later. Mm-hmm. Well done, Pivot. Yeah, super smart. (laughs) I thankfully was able to consult with some incredibly awesome uh, sexual health adolescent researchers as I was like trying to put this together. Figure it out. Um, Yeah. Well, it's interesting because there's like this flurry right now of people who are doing all sorts of research studies and they're like, okay, how do I measure something related to COVID? And there's often not like a research question, you know? And so, the fact that you were so quickly able to think deeply about how this environmental change might be impacting your, you know, your participants and then figure out also how to capture it. I mean, sometimes baking those ideas takes like a year or it can just take a very long time. So to be able to do that quickly, to react, to, to get it in with your IRB is super impressive. I mean, that's going to be really interesting data and important to look at. Yeah. I mean, it already is. I did our preliminary oh, analysis Oh, okay. What are you seeing? Uh, with the first 60 uh, participants mm-hmm. and uh, I'm I am now thinking about how to change the three-month questions to maybe mm. add some stuff to it um, but generally uh, this is really devastating mm. for the youth um, and uh, you know for a fair amount of them because they're not required to be sexually active to participate in my study it's not changing their sex life Okay. They they didn't have partners. They are not seeing partners. Like that's you know fine. Some of them are reporting you know increased masturbation, increased porn use. That's not surprising. Um, but it's really the it's palpable the mental health effects that this is going to have. Mm. Um, because if you think about your teenage years and you think about the amount of milestones that happen when you're a teenager, um, you know sexual debut is one of them, but also prom and dating for the first time, and graduation, and, um, you know, learning from your peers, and figuring out who you are, um, so many of those things are not happening. Um, and then there's just the mental toll of social, social isolation generally, um, which is even, I think, probably uh, a couple more folds harder for sexual minority youth, um, because they are already isolated in many ways, um, particularly those who are not out. Um, And so any sort of connection they had to their community and not being able to tap into that, and even if they do try to tap into that, worrying that their parents will find out that they're tapping into that Mm, is uh, really challenging. Um, So it's got, it's got me thinking a lot about like next steps for how to 
how to understand further the like depth and length of that uh, social isolation for these youth and then uh, how we can think about helping them. Yeah, and then given that this is, you know, sex, drugs, and science, well, um, there's a lot of research out there showing that folks with worse mental health on different indicators, greater anxiety, greater stress, um, greater depressive symptoms, that those folks also engage in, um, you know, greater substance use as a coping mechanism or sexual behaviors, you know, that may not involve condoms, that sort of thing. So that's a really interesting way to think about it, that this mental health impact that's going to happen on certain populations is going to sort of play out over the long term. And also this idea that, you know, for some, it's, it's a, it's, they're kind of more vulnerable to it. You know, I'm not, I didn't miss prom this month. (laughs) Like I just missed going into my office a lot. So um, the things that people are missing out on might be different depend like there might be age pattern effects. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I collect a lot of mental health and substance use data. Um, mm-hmm. and so I'll be able to look at that as well over the course of, you know, my, my three month follow-up period. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> so I wanted to end on asking you about your R01. Congratulations. Yay. So an R1 is a huge uh, grant. It's a huge award. And um, you are studying minor consent laws around the U.S. And you're looking at kind of the impacts of these minor consent laws on um, HIV-related right testing, prevention, um, care outcomes. So now that we're talking to you, I mean, this seems like a, like a really nice extension of the work that you've already been doing with the populations that you've been working with. So, and also, you know, even kind of going back to this policy conversations around porn, this is like a really nice way of integrating in some of your interests in policy. So what are these minor consent laws around the country and how do they vary? Because you've got to have variation, you know, in your, in your independent variable in order to study it or in your, you know, in what you're looking at. So, uh, yeah, the minor consent laws are very interesting um, to me. I was just why I wanted a whole grant about them. Um, so minor consent laws, there are a lot of different kinds of minor consent laws. So there are minor consent laws that are specifically around like substance use treatment. Um, and there are minor consent laws around mental health treatment. And the minor consent laws that I'm specifically focusing on in this grant are around access to HIV uh, testing, treatment, and prevention services and, uh, and STD testing, treatment, and prevention services. So I'll start with STD because that's sort of the easiest to explain because it's all bundled together. So uh, across the United States, because we are a bunch of states, every state has its own minor consent laws. All 50 states allow most minors to self-consent, so don't need to involve their guardian, to receive STD testing and treatment and prevention services, kind of. And um, the differences between the states is really about age. So when a youth can do engage in those services uh, depends a little bit on age and whether the state has decided that there is a like lower age limit that they have to have met to be able to self-consent. Okay. What's interesting is that HIV has its own cutout. So HIV is not included in the STD laws. HIV is its own thing. Um, And uh, in 
I want to say my last count, 32 states, let's say 32 states, give or take, um, allow most adolescents to self-consent to HIV testing. There's then a sub-portion of those states that also allow for STD treatment. So there are some states where as an adolescent, you'll be able to test for HIV, but if you test positive, now your guardian has to be involved, which is not the greatest yeah. if you don't have a good relationship with your guardian. For sure. Yeah. Um, and then there's really interesting stuff happening around prevention for HIV, um, specifically now that PrEP has been approved for adolescent use. Um, and so there are a couple states now that specifically have minor consent laws around PrEP. Um, but there are other states that sort of fold PrEP into HIV prevention uh, minor consent laws. So we're trying to tease that apart a little bit to better understand what youth rights are across the states around prevention services. Um, the other really tricky, there are two other tricky things with minor consent laws. One is a lot of these states then have sort of like this back, back rule where you can, if a physician decides it's in the best interest of the minor to go ahead and tell the guardian anyway, even if the youth has the right to consent themselves, the physician can choose to do that. Hmm. That's interesting from a stigma perspective because we know that when people have greater latitude in decision making, especially providers, that there's just more opportunity for stigma to like to sort of rear its head. So yeah. if there are people, if there are certain types of adolescents that doctors thinks are think might be like less responsible or, you know, based on their sexual orientation or based on their gender identity or their race, then you could imagine that those are the youth who might be most at risk for having this, um, this option exercised. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Um, the other tricky part about this is about who pays. So if a youth is on their guardian's insurance, which most youth are, um, and they go in for, let's say, an HIV test, and the doctor charges that to the guardian's insurance, the guardian is now going to get an explanation of benefits form from their insurance company saying that the test happened. Okay. Um, and so there are some states that have worked out laws that actually protect youth in that particular scenario, but most states have not. Mm -hmm. um, and so for it's a, that's complicated, right? So think about what it would be like to be a teen and trying to understand <laughs> what your rights are around this and what potential like pitfalls might occur. Right. So all of these laws are created with this idea that it's going to decrease barriers to accessing these services for youth, um, but they're very complicated. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so this grant is really about deep diving into the laws to figure out what all of them are we're going to create a public health law database that tracks these laws from 1985 to current um, so that we can uh, really understand what the laws are, when they've changed, how they've changed. And so public health researchers can then use them um, to understand other behaviors by mapping them onto other data sets, which is what we're going to do uh, in our uh, second aim, which is to take that public health law database map it onto the National Survey of Family Growth and, and look to see if when these laws changed, did youth behavior change? Super My guess is smart. no. Yeah. Um, right. and so yeah, it's very fun to pitch, them, a, right? pitch your first very large grant and be yeah. like, I think there's going to be a null result here, people. Yep. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, you've got to really be a good, uh, you've got to have good grants womanship to get that to fly for sure. Um, yeah. And then our, uh, we have some preliminary data to show that youth don't know about these laws, which is not surprising okay. in any way, shape or form, because where would they have even heard about them? Right? Sure. They're not going to hear about them in sex ed. Nobody's telling them that unless it's California, which then they might be because California has the best sex ed of all. They're like the um, Netherlands of the, of the U.S. <laughs> the Netherlands of the U.S. Um, uh, and so the last aim of the study is to do a, a very large national survey of adolescents from every single state um, and D.C., um, 150 adolescents from each state. And wow. Okay. Um, and to assess their uh, understanding of these laws, um, their uptake of those services, what they think the laws should be, and uh, how they think we should get that information to them. Mm, um, mm -hmm. So really trying to tap into the youth perspective about like, what's going on with these laws, what they think would actually help. Um, I'm guessing that the legislatures didn't necessarily create a youth advisory board to inform uh, Are you sure? these laws. <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm really excited about that study and the team that I'm working with is just amazing. Um, it really, it's uh, an all woman uh, team and we are across five different institutions and from uh, clinical psychology to health policy, economic research to I have a law team at Columbia. Um, I have an internet research specialist in California. Uh, it's like really, it's a powerhouse team and I could not, I have social, I have a social epidemiologist. It's like, it's really, they're amazing. Um, and so I am pumped on so many levels to do this study. Um, but I think really part of that is about this amazing, very collaborative team that I'm working with. Well, it's amazing and a real testament to you to be able to pull those people together and get them at the table along with the youth um, who are going to be advising you along the way to pull off this sort of really exciting project. So you're going to have to come back and tell us about how it goes in a couple of years or sooner. Tell yes, us about what two. happens. Season two. <laughs> tell us what, about what happens with this, um, with your COVID data. Oh, but yeah. Kim, Thank you so much for joining us today. We really super appreciate your time. Um, you were the first person that I called when I had the idea to do this podcast. And so I want to thank you for encouraging it. I also want to advise that, you know, if any listeners really hate the show, that maybe they should, you know, tell you instead <laughs> of me. <laughs> I'll Carly. take all the blame. It's okay, totally yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, if it's terrible, like, we're sending them your way. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. For, I'm used to sure. it. Don't worry okay. about it. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think that that would be helpful for my own mental health. <laughs> um, is there anywhere that listeners could go to learn more about your work? I mean, when we Googled you, we saw that you have been keeping the BU press like very busy with like all these really great articles about you. Um, so, it's, But is there anywhere in particular other than Google Scholar where people could go to learn more about either you or any of these types of things? I think the the BU website, the BU School of Public Health website uh, is a really good sort of collection of information Excellent. about me because it lists all of the articles, but also all of the, like all of my publications. Um, 
it doesn't list my R01 for some reason. I don't understand why that is, but you know, but we're all there's been a lovely article on it. So there was know. a lovely article. Very on lovely it. That's article true. on it. Okay. <laughs> um, and actually, they're going to be doing an article about my COVID work uh, oh, coming nice. out next week. So great. Okay. Well, you're going to be like. That's going to be like three articles in two months or something from BU School of Public Health. So, so that's good because we all need more exciting things to be reading about. So, yeah. and also a big congratulations, as you know, to our early career um, SBM investigator winner. It was Aww. a big bummer not to be able to go out to San Francisco and to celebrate you and to scream in your face about all of this like amazing body of re research. Um, even though it's like a, it's, it's funny to, that you're an early career investigator because this is a very like robust and diverse body of research. So, um, so congratulations again to that. And I'm looking forward to, you know, eventually maybe getting out to San Francisco and having that sour dough bread and going <laughs> to one of these porn release parties to celebrate you. Hopefully. I don't yeah, know if the same. porn release parties are happening anymore. It might We're be that. make it happen. Well, California, very, so California is, <laughs> I'm going to side note us for a second. Yeah. California is very interesting because they tried to pass a proclamation of, uh, and I think this was specifically in San Francisco, that porn actors had to use condoms. And I can't remember if it was California wide or if it was San Francisco specific. No, I think it was California wide. Um, and what that ended up doing was a lot of the porn studios then just left California. Oh, okay. So we'll have to go somewhere else maybe to go to a porn release party and eat sourdough or whatever the local bread treat is. Well, that'll be our fun way. We'll have to figure out how to celebrate. But congratulations again. It couldn't have gone to a better, um, more deserving scientist. And thanks thank again you. for joining us, Kim. Oh my God, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great meeting with you and talking with you. This was like the most fascinating morning meeting I've ever had in my whole <laughs> entire life. And now every meeting is going to be held to this bar. So... <laughs> Carly. Hey, Valerie. <laughs> so as you know, in Stigma Lab, we've been thinking a lot about how people are digesting news and media related to COVID lately. Yes, I've done a lot of the uh, Reddit research on yeah. conspiracies. <laughs> yeah, deep dive on yep. conspiracy beliefs. So I got thinking when I was reflecting on our conversation with Kim about this connection between, you know, pornography literacy. She did a really nice job of, of highlighting the connections to like media literacy earlier on in life, all the way out then to like news and social media literacy in the context of COVID. Right. Because I think, you know, what we've been seeing is that people have a hard time, you know, to some extent figuring out if some of these theories and rumors that are circulating around are true or false. And the conversation with Kim got me thinking about like, oh, I wonder if people did more thinking about why these things are circulating, if that would help them to, to you know, gain a greater understanding of why some of these ideas like coronavirus is started by 5G or it's a bio part of a bioweapons program like why those things might be circulated for circulating for reasons other than they're true and nobody wants to talk about it 
Right, right, exactly. Yeah, it yeah. is so funny though. The other thing that Kim said was that um, once you your brain starts working that way, or once you make your brain start mm. working, that's why it's hard to turn it off. So uh, I, it's funny. I have really been noticing. Like there was some commercial on last night, and I was like, "Who, who is this for?" And was like, "Oh, wait a minute, I'm doing exactly what Kim Nelson said I would do once I that's started cool. this." But it is so important because she's right. It does. You know, it's not just about the the porn literacy, although that obviously is an important part of it. But if you know, like you said, if it starts off with the media literacy, then it's, you know, going to just go leaps and bounds from there and have someone that can think independently and weigh these things and ask themselves these questions to like know what to, to trust when there's so much information going around. Yeah, it's a really cool example about of how some of these issues that we study are so interdisciplinary and interconnected. The fact that like some of the same skills that you can use to to watch porn are the same skills that you can use to like watch commercials targeted around diet pills or, (laughs) or like to navigate like COVID conspiracies, like just having an awareness of this information can be really useful. And also we just kind of need to do better at it across the board in a lot of different areas. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Kim, you know, Loki mentioned that she's part of this research team for this R01 level project that's funded by the National Institutes of Health, um, and that this team is like this group of women. And I wanted to underscore for a moment just how amazing this project is and how remarkable it is that she like has assembled this group of women to work on it. So I was, I was nerding out this morning um, with some numbers, drinking my tea, caffeinating up. And I found that NIH maintains this website. It's called the NIH data book and it breaks down information on who receives their grant money. And it's beautiful. It has all of these graphs and trend lines and it's like, you know, beautiful and stressful all at the same time. But, um, so overall, the success rate for NIH grants in 2019 was 20%. So first off, I mean, these grants are really challenging to get. And so the fact that she's been so successful is like really phenomenal. But then I also found that women receive 33% of these research project grants. And I assume that's like women as the principal investigator, basically like the, the mate, the person in charge of the study. So I was like, you know, so first off, I was surprised, 30, 33%. Right? That's not 50%. No. No. Um, <laughs> but then I also saw that the success rates for getting grants between men and women is pretty similar. Uh, so it said like around 20% for first submissions and 40% for resubmissions. So to me, what it looks like, that's happening there by looking at, you know, three graphs for five minutes this morning without doing a deep dive. And I'm sure other people have, but I'm wondering if this is consistent with other research, you know, about women in academia and women scientists more generally that at like earlier levels of training, we've got like a lot of women grad students and a lot of women who um, are assistant professors in the field. And then as you go kind of up the ranks in academia from assistant to associate to full, you see smaller and smaller like groups of women. And so the fact that, you know, we have fewer women who are, who are getting these NIH grants, 
even though they're fun, you know, when they do apply, they're doing equally well, it looks like as men suggests to me that we've got like a women scientists falling out sort of issue happening again. Which makes it even more impressive that Dr. Nelson's whole team on this project is all women. I know. And I love that you said, I mean, when I was saying that, I was like, which makes us a total bummer. And so the <laughs> fact that you're like, which makes it more impressive. Like, what a nice, lovely spin there. Yes, yes. So totally impressive that she's yeah. like, has this group of collaborators. Yeah, we're not here to compare our lab to other labs. Hang on. Yeah. We're just here. We're just here to highlight. Oh, no, the good I mean, that got, is no, I know. Yeah, yeah. We've got lovely, <laughs> lovely ladies of science who we collaborate with as well. Yeah. For sure. But it's just it's really remarkable that Kim has this NIH R01 level award that as an assistant professor, I mean she's operating at a really high level of science, um, even though she's still, you know, technically like a junior faculty member. So it's just right. really amazing. Yeah. I think too, especially it's even more impressive when you consider all the challenges, and I think we touched on this that that, you know, she has to face like, you know, in she can't really name pornography in any of the titles <laughs> of her work. Like there's all these little intricacies about, you know, uh, the, the research that she does that makes it even more challenging. So, again, mm -hmm. it's just these layers and layers of total yeah. badassery, for lack of a better, better term. Um, yeah. You know? Like, yeah, I wonder if she can get that on her card, Dr. Kim Nelson, layers of badassery. <laughs> oh, probably. She could get it tattooed, really, I think is what she should do. Kim, if you're listening again, <laughs> the takeaway okay. really here. All right, well, I think, you know, now that we're recommending tattoos for our guests, we should probably wrap this up. So we'll give a big thanks to the Stigman Health Inequities Lab at the University of Delaware, especially Natalie Brousseau, Sarah Lopez, and Alyssa Leung and to Christina Holsapple, who did the research for this episode. So thank you to her. Yep. And as always, we thank City Girl for letting us use their music for the podcast. <laughs>